Monty Suter is a respected New Zealand historian who took a big step and turned his life upside down to write a game-changing novel, Kawai, for such a time as this, the first instalment in what is to be a three-book family saga which went straight to the top of the bestseller lists in New Zealand and stayed there for 22 weeks. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and it's quite likely no one else but Monty has the knowledge and understanding to undertake a book like this. In the tradition of Alex Haley's roots, introducing readers to pre-European Maori life in much the same way as Alex Haley's tale of tracing his roots back to Africa, captivated an international audience. Monty tells the fascinating tale of how he came to write it and explains how all of his life experience seemed to be leading up to this point. Perfect preparation for writing a trilogy telling a story of nation building through the eyes of its original people. Our giveaway for this week is free historical fiction for June and Sadie's Vow, my book one in the Home at Last trilogy, is included in a good range of other selections. Links for where to download those free books are in the show notes for this episode on the website thejoysofbingereading.com along with links to all of the major points discussed with Monty in the show. And don't forget, if you enjoy the podcast, leave a review so others will find us too. But now, here's Monty. Hello there, Monty, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Jenny. I'm pleased to be beyond the show and Kia ora, Kia ora, yes. Now, we've mentioned in the intro about how Roots was partly the thing that sparked this, and Alex Haley's Roots was published way back in the late 70s when you were just a, a wee toddler. So how did you come to be aware of it and what sort of an impact did it have on you when you were a younger boy? Well, no, I wasn't a toddler. I was at secondary school when I saw the series. So I didn't even read the book. I saw the series on television. It was one of the, uh, I think it was the biggest television series in terms of audience in New Zealand up until that time. And uh, what intrigued me about it was that this guy was able to track his family's history through really some oral accounts that had been passed down through the family. And it reminded me so much of how Māori keep their records orally. And the other thing that impressed me was his own journey. And towards the end of the series, they looked at his story about how he found this information about his family. And it resonated with me because I was doing that at, at pretty much at the same time. As young as I was trying to find out more about my family history. And it almost like in watching the program, it grabbed him in, in a way that he couldn't let it go. It's almost like he was meant to do this. And I had that same feeling. I didn't, I don't know why I was interested in history, particularly Maori history. Why in my family, and there was seven in my family, brothers and sisters. But I was the one who had this passion to know who we were. And something had planted it in me. 
And that's what I found. And that's why Alex Haley's roots resonated with me and him particularly and his journey. Great. So give us a picture of yourself at that stage. For those who aren't so familiar with New Zealand, where in New Zealand were you? What tribal affiliations did you have? And set the picture for us a little bit. Yes, well, everybody thinks Māori are one group of people and we're tribal. And uh, there's slight differences between the tribes. Where you come from actually matters. And I come from on my mother's side, the east coast of the North Island from a tribe of people known as Ngāti Pro, and on my final side, I come from Whakatane, from a tribe known as Ngāti Awa, who had two different and entirely different experiences of the of colonization. One, my, on my father's side, they lost all their land as a result of the wars fought in the 1860s, and that meant that their journey post the 1860s was a, a depressing one. And that huge psychological impacts on the people, I believe. But on my mother's side, we retained all our land and then we fought on the side of the New Zealand government or the British Crown. And so we had a much more favorable future as a result. I was at boarding school in the late 70s when a Catholic boarding school in Fielding at the time. We were born Anglicans, but we're pretty flexible and Māori people. We all believe we were praying to the same gods. It was the education we were after rather than the religion. And so that's where I was as, as a young person. I wasn't studying history because the priest told me it wouldn't get me a job once I got out of school. So I, I never pursued it then. But I just had this innate interest in learning more about my own history and particularly Māori history. Probably good to point out that this is the first in a trilogy. So this book takes us just at the point of when the European settlers arrive. And the next two are going to cover the much later development of the story. It's very much a work in progress at the moment. But the subtitle of the book, Hawaii, is for such a time as this. And it's very much a book of its time. Talk a bit about that subtitle for such a time as this. It comes up in the book, but also it's relevant to what's happening in New Zealand right now. Yes, it appears a number of times during the story, during the novel, but right now in New Zealand, we seem to be on the cusp of change, in my view. I mean, right now, this year, 2023, we've introduced them to the New Zealand school curriculum, compulsory learning of New Zealand history right through from, I guess, the entrance right through to the end of secondary school. And that's a first, which suggests to me that attitudes have changed where we realize knowing about our past is important. And I think this particular book, and it's written with a view to being introduced in the curriculum, and that's that's another reason I did it. I think that 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, no, I don't think the country was ready to visit the past in terms of our pre-colonial history, and nobody really wants to go there, but the impact of colonization on the indigenous people of this country and, and how it shaped New Zealand. And I just think that this younger generation that's coming through, they don't have the issues we had growing up with, I guess, with our race relations, with knowing who we really are. But, you know, I do believe that to go forward, you've got to know where you come from. And so I think for such a time as this is right now is that time we're ready to revisit our past. And I think this novel actually opens the door to the past in a way that 
not now where he's done so far. Yes, I do agree with you there. You tell the story of how you came to write it, almost like it's a a spiritual odyssey. It's like a bit of a road to Damascus encounter that you had as you were planning or thinking about it. Can you tell us a little bit about how everything that you've been doing, perhaps up into that point in your life, grew together and created something quite new and sudden and rather challenging? In 2019, I finished my most recent non-fiction book, which was a, a history of Māori participation in the First World War. And it's a huge book. It took me about five years to research and write. So I was pretty almost burned out after that and decided to go on holiday with my wife. And because I'd put so much time into that, I felt there was an opportunity to just to sit back and have a blow, really. And we were heading to Greece for three months to spend time with our friends. and But before I left, I had this, I had this inkling that there's something I'm supposed to do next and it's not non-fiction. And I was thinking about it. I thought, I'm, I think it might be I'm going to turn to fiction. Largely because I felt that the audience in, through non-fiction is not as great as, well, the audience I was really interested in, that's young people. I felt that fiction was the way to reach them, but I just didn't quite know what I was going to write. And I was it bed with my wife at about 4.30 in the morning, if I remember right. And I guess because I was thinking about it, I was half asleep and I heard this voice. I didn't actually hear it, but this impression in my mind just said, get roots. And it was clear. And I woke up about an hour and a half later and I said to my wife, hey, we've got to get this book, Roots. And I knew what all it did was get roots, but somehow I knew and understood what that meant. It was to get the book roots and read it, which I'd never read. And as I was mentioning to you before, Jenny, the roots series was well known to me from the 1970s. And my wife's heard me before say that I've heard things and she knows enough about me to know that this is actually could be real. I wasn't sure, but we were heading back to Gisborne. And it was a Sunday in Auckland, so there's no bookshops open. And I said, well, the book's so old, you probably have to go to a second-hand bookshop or a rare bookshop. And so we're driving back to Gisborne, and we get to this little place called Pairoo, which is a little town between Auckland and Gisborne, on a Sunday when you wouldn't expect anything to be open. And I was asleep, and she was driving, and she nudged me, and she said, hey, look, there's a Red Cross book sale on the side of the road. And I looked up and sure enough, and there was just these boxes of books there that were being sold. And on a Sunday, it's just, it was pretty amazing that there was one. So we stopped and we said, well, let's have a look. Who knows? That book roots might be here. And they had them in alphabetical order in boxes, A to Z. And I walked straight to the box that had the R's, the books with ours, and they all spine down. So you had to look at the spine to see what the title was. But in this particular box, there was one book sitting on top of all the others with the, the cover down, but it wasn't spine down. It, the book was sitting there like it, it was waiting for somebody. And I turned it over and it was The Roots book by Alex Haley. And I looked at my wife, she looked at me. And so we knew then that whatever I had heard, whatever this impression voice was, meant something that I was supposed to do. So I took the book to Greece and I read it. 
uh, that novel, uh, Alex Haley's novel. And long story short, I came to the understanding in my mind that I'm supposed to write a novel like this that looks at the, because Roots is about six generations of a, a black American family and that starts from the ancestor being captured in Africa and brought to America. So I felt that I was to write a saga like that, which followed a number of generations of a Māori family in order to tell the history of this country in a way that it's never been told before. That's what I had come up with. Now, I spent a bit of time in France after Greece, and we went to a resort where it was really quiet. And, and I know from the past that if you block everything else out and you focus, you can start to hear things that you might not have as you know, if you're busy with life. And so after a seven-day pass and a sort of retreat, which I had learned from the Catholics when I was at boarding school, I started, well, even five days into it, I started to hear this impression again in my head. And I wrote down what I was being told. And there were three things, three big things that I believed I had to do once I got back to New Zealand. One was to, uh, to leave my job. And I worked for the government as an historian. Two, to sell my house, or our house, my wife and I. And I understood that was to give me some income to be able to write the series that I've started on. And the third one was to write the series. So leave work, sell a book, write the series. And I'm that sort of person who's, if I hadn't seen the Roots book there sitting on that box, I might have been had some doubts, but I believe that there was some sort of divine guidance that was leading me into doing this, that I was ready to do it. No questions asked. But I had to ask my wife, of course, because it was going to impact on her. And I can say that she wasn't king immediately, but through some things that happened, I think she realized that this is something that has to be done and I'm meant to do it. And we came back to New Zealand and I followed that plan. And that's how I got to into writing the Carway series. Is she reassured that it is the right thing to do now that you've got one book out? Is she on board with it now? Yes, definitely. I mean, what's happened with this first book, you can't put this down to me because I didn't have any experience in writing novels. I've never written fiction before. And the response that I've had to the book, she's seen it too. Uh, she was my greatest critic, actually, because she's read a lot of novels. But she used to say all the way through the drafting of it, this doesn't sound like a novel. This sounds like you, a historian, writing nonfiction. And it used to grate at me, but I, I used to measure how good the book was based on the feedback she'd given to me. And just the things that have happened with this book and just how it's taken off. I know you can't put that down to me and my ability, that whatever this was that's guiding me, this is all meant to happen. And I have no doubt about that. And it has sold very well, hasn't it? Well, I mean, it went straight to number one New Zealand fiction in, in the week it was launched, and it stayed there for 22 weeks at number one. That's, I heard of some sort of a record, and I really can't explain why people, well, such a diverse group with the population are reading it, because it's not one group of people. It's a wide range. I mean, the greatest thrill I get is people who come to me and say, look, I've never read a book since I left secondary school, but this book has encouraged me to read. And I think that 
has to be put down that people do actually want to know something about the history of this country. Yeah, that's right. Now, the book does tackle some difficult subjects because Maori culture was, had its war and brutal aspect. And you've tackled those head on with a great deal of honesty and made it understandable how that culture operated, the way it just really hung together as a cohesive unit. Tell us a bit about how you managed to get to that. And was it hard to front up to some of those issues? So for those who don't know much about New Zealand, the Māori ancestors arrived here some 800 years ago from the Pacific. And uh, people, the two islands, well, there's more than two islands, but the two main islands. And as the population grew, in order to protect resources, there was a lot of fighting that went on. And in our history, there was cannibalism. So you ate your enemies and there was polygamy where you had more than one wife or one husband. So that's the kind of culture that was here. It was a tough existence for people, depending on where you were ranked in the tribal structure. If you were a chief, it wasn't so bad. But if you were less than that, life was quite difficult. But it was also, the novel describes that it was a beautiful place. And when the fighting wasn't happening, people were good to each other and they were close to nature and they had strong spiritual beliefs. So that's the sort of environment that existed here in this country. And I basically start this novel in the 1700s and we're right in that sort of environment. There are no non-Maori here. They were just our ancestors. And I tried to describe what it was like. The other thing about Māori people back then, you had to be careful what you said. It, it was easy to insult somebody. That you could say something that was taken the wrong way, and that would lead to sometimes the destruction of a whole tribe of people. And with all this fighting going on, if you attack one tribe, you can be assured that they were going to attack you back if they weren't going to do it immediately because they didn't have the, uh, the soldiers to do it or the warriors to do it. They would wait a generation, two, three sometimes but they would never let it lie. And so right up until the first Europeans arrived, there was a lot about balancing the books. We owe you for something you did to our ancestors two or three generations ago. And that's what I've really tried to do in the novel, to create that society so that it's believable and to get people to understand how important vengeance was to that society. Yes. So your main character, as a young boy, he witnesses a massacre where his father and a lot of his close relations die. And he just almost miraculously manages to escape from that scene. But it's obviously very traumatic for him. And then you jump to when he's young man, 1920, having his first son. And that son is dedicated to basically restoring the mana of the tribe by carrying out warfare against the people that had killed their people a generation before. And we follow that character right through in a very touching way so that we understand really the dilemma that a person like that faces, whether they were naturally of warrior spirit or not, if their position in the tribe required it, they had to fulfill that role. Now, I know that it's based on a lot of work you have done on your own genealogy, but you have not called the characters by the names of your family. Tell us a little bit about why you made that call. You've slightly clouded it so people can't just point and say, oh, yes, that's Monty's ancestors. 
you've made it a little bit more of a mystery. Tell us about why you made that choice. Yes, well, you described that really well. Chapter two is when he's born, the protagonist for this novel, and we really follow him from the womb to the tomb in the story. He's a flawed hero. And I guess what you come to understand in the novel is that if you train a person in, to be a warrior, to know nothing else, but to that you get your way through killing. But once he had achieved his purpose in life by avenging his grandfather's death, well, he's got some problems because he only knows how to conduct life in one way. In terms of my own family, this is based on a true story. That's why it was so easy for me to tell. And people read the book and they see that you almost empathize with them, even though, you know, he can be quite brutal at times. I absolutely agree. You leave it at a real cliffhanger at the end, and I'm still hoping that something good happens for him. Well, this child, even in the womb, he's dedicated to the task of avenging his grandfather's death. And he's got no choice. And that's the sad part about it, that he has no choice in life. He either has to do this or die. And that really was what it was like for a lot of our, our warrior leaders back in, in those days, male and female, that their lives were dedicated to causes that went of their making. And it helps to also to explain why Māori have long memories today. The tribunal process that I'll talk about later, the treaty settlement process, that people have not forgotten what happened to their ancestors 150 years ago, and they bring it up, and, and it affects their lives, even today. And to think that the way I wrote it was the way I was told it. Of course, I've had to grow it and embellish it in places to make a really good story, but his story is how I heard it on the Mariah, I heard it from my aunt, my own uncles and grand uncles to protect then the the people I changed their names but in such a way that my own family will know who I'm talking about. For example, the prologue opens at a place called New Pear Par. Now if you try to find that par on the East Coast, it doesn't exist. But if you turn it around to Pear New Par, New Pear, Pear New, that's the par everybody knows I come from. And I've done that with all the ancestors' names. I've left enough clues in there for my own people to know who I'm talking about because I really want them to understand this is a true story. It involves our ancestors, and but I don't want others to. And it doesn't really matter for others. It's not that important uh, who these people are. But I was thinking too, I just didn't want people rocking up to the Jalwarai and to some of our places that I've written about after the book because I knew the book was going to take off. And, and that's happened before with other books and films that have been made about places on the East Coast. So I was conscious of that. The other reason I changed the name still, I was wanting to protect myself so that, because it's the enemy tribes that I talk about, you know, if they come knocking on the door and say, hey, you're talking about us, I'll be able to say, no, I'm not. Where does it say your tribal name in there? Yes, that's very good thinking. Yeah, that, that's amazing. You end the book, as I mentioned on a real cliffhanger. It's, it's a great way to do it, actually. But that does mean that we're left really hanging to know what the next book, where it's going to begin and when we're going to be able to read it. How are you going with the process of writing a trilogy? 
Uh, the second book, well, I wrote the whole plan out, the structure for it, the what's to happen in each chapter. And I've written about a third of it now. I can't say it comes easy, but it starts in, in 1880, 1819. And that is the period in which muskets are in the hands of some tribes and moving around the country. And we, who have no muskets at that period, face the onslaught of that and the impact of it. So it jumps probably, what's that, 14 years or so from, from the first story. But you get to learn what happened in the, uh, at the end of that other, yes, well, not, yes. I don't want to put away, but no, that's we'll fair learn enough. what happened then yeah. and, uh, and then we'll follow it through. And it goes through to about the 80, about 1850. So yes. it's a, about a 30-year period this next book covers. And as I did with the first book, every scene has embedded in it some, something of the tigana or customs of Māori life back then. And so you see it even with the beginning of colonization, which really colonization for us began with the musket. Now, you did do a massive work, which has never seen the light of day, I think. You, you've transcribed oral history, and that's been tucked away and kept secret for your family. But towards the end of this book, they do have an encounter with European sailors who they hardly even understand are other men. At the beginning, they think that there's some sort of spiritual or strained people. I wondered, just out of curiosity, was that actually taken from any of the oral history records that you transcribed? What I can say is that every story that's in the novel may not have happened to my family, but it happened on our coast to one of the families around there. Okay. And uh, that particular account that you're referring to is recorded in one of the Māori newspapers, uh, even what was said and how they were perceived. And you think about it, they've never seen white people before. And as I read the account, and it's written in the Māori language, Captain Cook's men were rowing towards them with their backs turned. So they thought, well, these are some sort of gods because they've got eyes in the back of their heads because of the way that they're coming at us. I try to imagine, even though it's written about what was said in the conversation with the two groups of people, just what must have been going through my ancestors' heads, seeing these people for the first time who were fair-skinned. And on our coast, there we have a tradition of Ture, or fairy people who are fair-skinned. And these, these sailors looked, resembled those people. So you can imagine what they were thinking. These aren't human. We need to treat them with respect because they're probably gods or uruke, uruke is what we call people on the East Coast who have fair skin and a reddish uh, all burned hair. And we have a tradition of that. And I think that's what, who they thought these people were. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, moving along from the specific books to your wider career, you've mentioned about the tribunal. For those who aren't so familiar with this New Zealand history, perhaps you could just fill in some of the gaps. The Waitangi Tribunal was established to hear grievances for land losses, and you've been sitting on it for 20 years, you would have heard a huge amount of history that never has made the general populace during those years. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, it's a commission of inquiry, and it was set up under an act of parliament of the New Zealand parliament in 1975. And so it's inquisitorial, it's not adversarial, but we hear evidence from claimants, and we hear the Crown's response to it for historical most of the ones that have been heard to date are for historical grievances where 
the Treaty of Waitangi, which was signed in 1840 between Māori and the Crown, which allowed the British to govern, and uh, but it protected the rights of Māori. Wherever there's been a breach, people can bring claims about that breach. And our job is to, to write a report to the government after we've heard all the evidence about whether we believe there's a breach here, so that the government can then settle those claims. And in the process, we hear all this information about that area or all of the tribes from that area, that really is a privilege. It's like what I've written in the novel. This was in-house information that I wrote that's usually kept for the marae or kept for your family. It's not put out there into the big wide world. And similarly, with what comes before the tribunal, you wouldn't normally hear these tribes talking to anyone else but themselves about their past. And because it's all recorded and we have all the evidence that was put before us. But the only thing that goes public is the reports we write. And they're often quite complex and difficult to condense. And I think it's a shame because it really is New Zealand's history that we haven't done more to make it accessible to New Zealanders. And one of the reasons I'm writing this novel series is to take a lot of my experience drawing from that and just through this one family story and try and give people insight into what else must be out there. And I'm hoping too that travel historians will pick up the pen or pick up the laptop and do for their own areas what I've done in terms of the story of taken from the East Coast. Yes. Look, Nanti, as reader, because it is the joys of binge reading, we do like to ask everyone we talk to about books they'd like to recommend. And you could well have some fiction books you want to recommend, but I was particularly curious to hear, I see you referred to the fact that when you were in Greece on holiday, you started to read some historical novels so that you'd get a feel for the historical novel form. And perhaps being a reader myself, I was quite curious, what historical novels did you read at that point? And do you recall any of them particularly? Well, of course I read Roots. Yes, of course. I had to, that was the first one. But some of the ones I'd that come to mind, and you've got to remember I'm going from almost zero novel reading because I, I was only ever interested in non-fiction. If it's not true, I wasn't that keen on reading it. But I read this this book by a Nigerian author, uh, Chinua Achibi, Things Fall Apart. And I was interested in it because it dealt with the Nigeria, Southeast Nigeria, the pre-colonial period, then the invasion by Europeans, and particularly the impact of Christianity on on that part of Nigeria. So I, I found that really interesting. Of course, War and Peace, told stories of War and Peace. Uh, I read, particularly because my somebody told me that it, it follows this family through and you watch the kids grow up into marriage and that sort of thing. And I thought that's what I was going to do with mine. I've only followed a, a guy's story through. While I was in Greece, I read this book called The Island by Victoria Hislop. And it was about Spinaloga, a, a beautiful Greek island where they put people who had leprosy onto the island. It's a great, great book. It made me understand more about that sickness and how people reacted to it back in the 1950s. So I was fascinated because I, I love Greece. It really resonated with me. The Red Tent by Anita Diamante, I think her name is. Diamante. Diamante. And that was about Jacob's daughter, 
What's the name? Not Rachel. Dinah. Dinah. Who has got a little mention in the Bible, but she takes the story of Dinah and imagines what it must have been like with this daughter. Remember, Jacob had 12 sons and follows through what happened to her because she was taken by a king of another tribe. And I like that one because it, my wife recommended it to me, by the way. She had read it and because I had to get my head into the minds of women, particularly in terms of a love affair. And in my novel, the protagonist, he meets the love of his life at a very young age. And so I wanted to try and understand how this young woman, her experiences. Yeah. And then there was Wolf Hall, which looked at Thomas Cromwell's rise to power in King Henry VIII's court. Again, I wanted to follow through because I knew my novel was the story of someone's life and how they rise to power. And that's another reason I read that. It was recommended to me. And The Luminaries by Eleanor Kitten back here in New Zealand because it had a Maori character in there and it was based in New Zealand. I wanted to learn, learn from that. And I read Patricia Grace's too, which is a Maori who goes off the war. Because in book three, I probably, well, I haven't planned book three yet, it's probably going to touch on a character like that. You got a lot of reading in, didn't you? <laughs> well, I, I was basically sitting on a beach, my wife and I, and we had to do something. And once I'd realized I'm going to write a novel, I thought, well, I don't know how to do that. I really need to learn very quickly. And I thought the fastest way was to read novels. Yes. I think it's lovely that you're very interested too get younger readers involved, younger people interested. And to do that, I think you're right. You do have to use some form of genre to do that, either book or audio book, or hopefully in the end, TV as well, film. This probably will get translated into some sort of visual medium because although there are readers, it's much harder for younger people to concentrate on books these days, probably. Absolutely. And if you've read the book, you'll appreciate that every scene I've written, and I was told to do it like this, to try and imagine you're watching it on the big screen because young people were my target audience. And, and I know even at the best of my ability that then a lot of them aren't going to read, but they're going to watch it. And so I've written it like a movie and I know it's a matter of time that it'll be turned into a movie. I've already had a number of approaches. If you read the scenes, you can See, people say you can almost touch the past when you read this book, a past that was never available to people. And it's because I've had in mind that to capture young people, I've got to get this turned into some sort of moving picture that everybody's watching it on their phones and or they're going to movies or they're watching it on, on their laptops and that. And so I've got that in mind. Now, the writing, the book series is only one of the steps towards the outcome that I have in mind. I can absolutely agree with you that you can, you just feel you can picture it. You feel you do have a much better understanding of what life must have been like then. It's no, no doubt about it. Looking back down the tunnel of time, if there was one thing about your whole writing career that you changed, what would it be? I think that I would have believed in myself a lot earlier than I have in terms of my ability to write fiction. Because I'd thought about it way back in the 90s. Actually, even back in when I was at uh, Intermediate, when I was about 12, 
we had this assignment, we had to write a couple of chapters about, uh, I think mine was on my uncle who had gone to the Second World War. And the teacher told me then, oh, you've got some ability. I didn't believe it because there were no role models for me. I, there was nobody in my family had been to university. And most of them had finished school and maybe form two at the end of primary school. And I didn't see many Māori who, with the year mine, I hadn't even written his first novel then. There just was nothing that showed me that, well, there's space for Māori in this in fiction. So I, so that's what, yeah, on reflection, I would like to have changed if I could have, and I probably would have written a lot more by now and at a much younger age. If there was one thing to which you'd attribute your success, Monty, in your writing, what would it be? What I attribute my success to, honestly, I've got a strong faith, and, and I know that this is God that's really doing this. I don't, just don't doubt it. I've had enough experience. I know where that voice came from. I know that I say in the, in the back of my book that you speak to God through prayer and he speaks to you through intuition. And I know the success of this book and the whole series is totally due to him, not me. And I always make that point to people who might understand what I'm talking about. You still are doing your work on the Waitani Tribunal. Give us an idea of what your working day looks like now and how you factor in all the things, demands you've got on your time. Remember, I left my full-time employment. My only distraction is the tribunal, which calls me up. We have a hearing about a week every two months. But in order to prepare for that week's hearing, you're probably going to read for at least a week and a half. So every second month, I'm losing half that month prepared and going to hearings. Other than that, though, I would be writing or reading anything that is working towards the goal of getting the second book out. But there are distractions. So we're about to have our first grandchild in a couple of weeks. We were hit by Cyclone Gabriel earlier this year. My father died about a month ago. So it's almost as if with the second book, there's something trying to stop me writing it. Sometimes I feel like that. But maybe in listening to my story, you'll realize that I'm a determined person. If I set my mind on something, I will make it happen. Come hello, high water. And in terms of this year, I expect to uh, have completed this second book around November. And, uh, and then we'll go into these stages with the editor of refining it for publication next year. Right. Do you have an overall title for the series? Yeah, the series is Carl Wayne. Oh, why? Yeah. Yeah. And the, each book has got a different name. And this one, the first one was just for such a time as this. The second one has already got its subtitle. It's the tree of uh, nourishment. But Kawai will be the name that runs right through. Kawai Māori means something like roots. It means lineage or your family line. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. It's the tree of nourishment. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I won't give away what that's all about. No, that's fair enough. Tell us, for international readers, where can they get copies of this book if they're interested in it? Is it available internationally? Yes, well, the easiest way to get it internationally is through Fishpond. If you Google away on Fishpond and my name, you'll get it and they ship it everywhere. And if you're in Australia, Booktopia is the probably the most efficient way to get it or John Reed Books. That's our distributor over there. I understand it's available as an ebook on Amazon. 
through Kindle. And it is coming as an audio book. I just can't tell you what date, but we're, we are working on that. Because a lot of people here in New Zealand have requested it as an audio book because of the Māori in there, particularly because to hear how it's pronounced. And a lot of people in this country are now learning the Māori language, so that would benefit them. It does give quite a bit of Māori language, and that's important because it helps you to really get integrated into the world. But you've got a full glossary at the back so that if people are feeling a little bit lost with the language, it's all there in the back, isn't it? Yes, the glossary is there, but every sentence that where they might speak in Māori has got a translation flowing straight yeah, after it. A lot right. of people will just want to get to the English, will skip the Māori. But the Māori is there just to remind people that, hey, in that period, this is the languages they were speaking. And it, it, I think it's another way of helping you to enter that period. Yeah, I agree. Look, do you interact with readers? I don't know if you've got a Facebook page set up or whatever, anything like that, or how can they reach you if they want to introduce a conversation? Yeah, my Facebook page is Monty Suter Author. Yep. Monty Suter Author. Yeah. And so that's one way of connecting with me. Right now, I'm head down, of course, and I don't answer everybody's queries. And if anybody's asking me, about what's in the next book or what happened as a result of the first book. I don't tend to answer those people. <laughs> well, Very cheeky of them to ask, I think. <laughs> yeah, what they do, they do. And, but they, that's one way of contacting me, and I do appreciate readers' feedback. I love going out to the festivals and uh, to the bookshops to talk to readers. It's rewarding, and it enthuses me to carry on writing. And you wouldn't get that unless you talk to the readers. So, yeah, I do welcome yeah. it. Would you consider doing international festivals at this stage, interrupting your writing process, or are you guarding your time, rather? Oh, that's the other thing I should have mentioned. It's not just a tribunal I'm doing, but I've got a stack of festivals that I'm doing this year. Mostly New Zealand and Australia have invited me to be part of a festival over there because the book's starting to move in Australia, and I'm sure there'll be more there. I like speaking to people and speaking to audiences. I've done that all my life, so I enjoy that. And I just love getting feedback from different cultures. Even though this is a story about Māori and New Zealand, the indigenous people of New Zealand, it will resonate with people all over the world. I know that all indigenous people, when they read this book, will see their own story in it. But I also know, too, that in the same way that New Zealand is on the cusp of change, I feel lots of other countries around the world are wanting to find, wanting to know more about how Indigenous people perceive the world. Because we've done so much damage to the world. We're all starting to realize, well, maybe there's something in the knowledge that Indigenous people have. And for that reason, I think a lot of people will read this novel series. Fantastic, Monty. That's a great place to finish. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Jenny, and I appreciate you contacting me and reading the book and enjoying it as you did. On Binge Reading next week, a complete change of pace. Juliet Fay and a tender coming-of-age love story, the half of it. One perfect night, 40 years of buried hurt, one chance to make it right. Can the past ever be fixed? With humour, heart and grace, 
USA Today best-selling author Juliet Fay delivers an immensely satisfied page turner, perfect for fans of Josie Silver and Jojo Moyes. That's it for today. Remember, if you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review so others will find us too. Thanks for listening and happy reading.